welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Colorado Mesa head coach Chris Hanks. Hanks is in his 25th season with the Mavericks, winning over 1,000 games. He's averaged over 40 wins a season. Hanks is a 24-year continuous member of the ABCA and has been an active committee member for the organization as Division II committee chair. Hanks is also a member of the competition, organizational, and rules committees. Hanks has the Mavericks rolling this season with a 48-9 record and a 20-game winning streak heading into Super Regional play against Angelo State May 26th to the 27th. Hanks was a standout player at the College of Southern Idaho, being named to the NJCAA Golden Anniversary Team. The NJCEA honored 20 players and two coaches from the last 50 years. Hanks is an avid reader, so we dive into his favorite leadership books. We also cover leadership training, hitting development, what he's learned over his playing and coaching career, and how he's changed his players' workload late in the season and handle postseason play. Let's welcome Chris Hanks to the podcast. Text is this I, something that goes out as video as well? J, JR puts it on YouTube. We started that uh, like February. Uh, it's been good. Okay. You know, some people like watching the videos. I, I've used the video forever. We just we just never did anything with them. I just like seeing people's faces and make eye yeah. contact with people. It's a big one for me. Eye contact's a huge one for me. Look at you. You guys are rolling, by the way. Oh, we're doing okay so far. I was careful with that right i know i know as a baseball coach it's like don't don't talk about it i mean i'm gonna mention it but we won't we won't go no there. no it's all good i'm not that superstitious i just i'm not either like i i, I was in I the talk. beginning i think as a player you're you're way more superstitious at times on things like that i think as a coach all that stuff goes away i remember one time when i was in the minor leagues i was on a like a hitting streak you know and it started, you know, you you, stu- you drove a certain way and stopped and ate at Subway. So then that turned into 13 days in a row. And then which sock did I put on first? And I got to a point where I was like, I can't live like this anymore. Yes. Wade Boggs. <laughs> Wade Boggs, the chicken man. Oh, man. It that and just... crushing, crushing Miller lights. 
Yeah. He's amazing. I, Matt Risden was an assistant of mine. He played for me two years, was an assistant. We used to do a leadoff dinner. The uh, Field of Dreams house was not that far from Western Illinois, from McCombs campus. And I had Travis Acre, coached at Ellsworth for a while. He coached junior college in Arizona, but um, he would help with that. So I sent Matt one year with a bunch of jerseys, and one was a Boggs jersey. And um, he got to hang out with Wade Boggs all day. And uh, he came back. I was like, hey, how was it? He goes... We started at 9, we ended about 2 a.m., and he had a Miller Light in his hand the entire time. Wow. <laughs> and he still looks good. Like, he sent me pictures of him. Like, guys should not look that good at that age for how much beer he's drank in his, in his lifetime. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, uh, Boggs, I was in the Boston system, and they would the big team would come down and play, like, on the AAA field once in a while, work out during spring training, and what amazed me about him is, uh, you know, as I remember, he could put on as good of a home run BP show as anybody, but that's not how he played in the games, you know. Yeah. Uh, they said Gwen and Ichiro were the same thing. They said those guys could go out of the yard anytime they wanted to, but that wasn't their game. No, and, he, you know, he'd spray it around in games, but in BP he could crank it. And, and then I remember watching him a couple of times during uh, batting practice, uh, you know, they, they were playing up on the big field, but they were taking pregame BP down on the AAA field and watching him take his ground balls at third. And he would only field like the last three or four balls game-like in front of his face. He'd field everything to the side. And we asked him, he goes, yeah, I don't want to get hit in the face before the game. Dorn. You know? <laughs> but he'd take his last few like they were real game reps. He just limited the exposure to getting hit. <laughs> Did you play with Scott Cooper? Yes. I love Coop because he, you know, him and, and Matt Whiteside started the Gamers organization in St. Louis. And, oh. and I, they started when I was the recruiting coordinator at Iowa. So we actually got a couple of their first players on those first couple Gamers teams. Brian Nabalski and then Sasha Keeble actually came and, and played wow. for us at Iowa. And they were on some of, of Coop and, and Matt's first teams with the Gamers. Uh, actually, my dad had recruited Scott out of high school. He signed committed to Arkansas, I guess, but he signed out of high school and never made it to college. But he, he remembered me because my dad had actually recruited Scott oh, wow. when he was coming out of high school because Evansville's close to St. Louis. Who was the head coach at Iowa at that time when you were there? Coach Dom. I was with Coach oh, Dom, okay. yeah. Jack, Jack brought me in. Um, I was coaching at JMU. Uh, I was making $9,000, uh, full-time hours, part-time pay. Uh, you yeah. know, we had just won 43 games, and because of Title IX, I was still going to make $9,000. Like, they, they could not – Spanky couldn't give me a raise. And my wife and I got married. My son was born and um, just was like – I. It's, it's those, like – there's always those forks in the road yeah. where it's like I, I can't – I have a family now. Like, I can't justify – you know, making nine during the year, scraping it together with doing laundry for the athletic department, football parking in the fall, and then coaching in the summer to get to about 20 to 25. I just looked at my social security statement the other day. So back in those, you know, and so just making it work. But luckily, uh, Coach Dom got the job at Iowa and then hired me as the recruiting coordinator because I don't know, I might, oh, cool. I, I might be bartending somewhere in Harrisonburg, Virginia right now if I hadn't gotten the job at Iowa. Well, I asked because uh, I'm good friends with Dwayne Banks. Yeah. I'm sure you know Dwayne. He's on our board still. I see him every year. Yeah, I've long. known Dwayne forever. 
Yeah, he's a Colorado guy. Yeah. Yeah. He, it seemed like the nine years I was at Iowa, some of the time he lived full-time in Colorado, then he'd come back, yep. he'd get tired of it, he'd come back. And I know he's done a lot with with the Junior College World Series and Grand Junction forever. Like, he, he's he's been on that board as well. So Dwayne's awesome. He's really good to me when I was at Iowa. Yeah, he actually volunteered for us for a full year. Uh, one of the years he was out here in Grand Junction, so he was an assistant coach. And we stay in touch. He texts me, dude, every couple of weeks probably. Was he as hard on the kids as an assistant as he was as a head coach? No. <laughs> uh, he, no. Those are no, no, phenomenal no. He, stories of those guys that played for Dwayne. He's like my dad, um, you know, away from the field, awesome, but you get them in between the white lines, they that persona turned into a, a different person. Yeah, no, he was the good guy. Uh, yeah. You know, Mr. Positive all the time with the kids. I was the negative guy. <laughs> Somebody has to be. I think on your staff, you have to have – there has to be good cop, bad cop. And I think you have to have different personalities too because not every kid's going to gravitate towards the same personality. So I think you got to have different personalities on your staff yeah. so the kids can gravitate to different people on your staff. Yeah, Absolutely. Here with Chris Hanks, head coach at Colorado Mesa, 25th season with over a thousand wins. Uh, has him rolling right now, 49 and or 45 and nine record. Has won 17 in a row. Uh, just won your tournament, heading into the regionals. 24 uh, year continuous member of the ABCA Division II committee chair, uh, also on the competition, organizational, and rules committee. So, Chris, thanks for jumping on with me. Uh, pleased to be here. Can you fit any more committees in? Because I need some help with the youth and the travel committees. Oh, I just, yeah, I actually probably do. I I just like to. I'm at a point in my career now where I want to try to help uh, make things better for all levels. And, you know, particularly the one that, that I currently coach at. Uh, I think that we can always uh, improve things. Do you think that's as you get older, I think you figure out that, hey, it's it's now my time to try to help those that are coming behind me or give back to the game a little bit more when you're early on, you're just trying to get your career started. Do you feel like as you get older in your career, it's more about giving back then? I do. You know, if I reflect back on the beginning of my career, it was, I mean, largely, I, I don't want to say all about me, but I wanted to build a program, win games, play for championships, whatever, what have you. And uh, as you grow and you move forward, you see some things that could be better. They need to change. Uh, and, you know, I, I accepted a role on the National Division II Baseball Committee for four years for the sole purpose of having access to trying to make the Division II National Tournament better improve things that carry there's great people in carry north carolina but i've also had access to the junior college world series in grand junction forever and they they do it like none other in my mind i mean they have done such a great job there's things that can be mirrored and and so to answer your question yeah i think that uh from rules to uh, brackets to tournament setups to access for student athletes uh, i i think yeah, I have a great uh, desire to just try to improve things for the coaches and the players. Is that the benefit of the Division Two Connect? I love the Division Two Connect. When I first got the job, I was on a couple calls before JR 
jump back on with those. Is is that a huge benefit for you all with doing the Division Two Connect, where all the head coaches, where the head coaches from the different conferences jump on a conference call with the Division Two? Yeah, you're talking about the coaches' connection. I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great sharing of ideas. The hard thing I found with that, it's it's a great program. Uh, getting everybody on the same page, and then you know, it's usually a monthly call. Uh, moving things forward, it's just painfully slow, you know, uh, because there will be people that miss the call for various reasons, and you have to bring them up to speed, and 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 then moving it into maybe turning it into NCAA legislation or proposals uh, is time consuming. You know, the the challenge with that is the geography piece, correct? Because everybody yeah. in different parts of the country has different challenges and. Yep. You know, Division One didn't have a starting date forever. And, you know, it was a huge advantage for the teams in the South because they could start. You know, you look back in the old days, Arizona State and Miami were starting in the middle of January. And they only had to play three games basically the entire year. And if you only got to play three games a week for the entire year, you might need nine pitchers to get through that. As opposed to in the Midwest when you're playing six games a week, um, you're going to need a heck of a lot more. And, and that scholarship money goes real quick when you've got to have 16 or 17 arms as opposed to nine arms. Yeah, it's, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I think a lot of baseball coaches agree. I mean, the time to play college baseball would be July through November and everybody would be kind of on an equal playing field. We'd be finishing up all the world series about the same time MLB's playing their world series, but that realistically probably will never happen. And, uh, I don't even think we'd be competing against football per se. I mean, people say that, but it's a difficult, you look at the situation in the Northeast with the weather, um, you know, in the Midwest, the upper Midwest, uh, there's just different strengths and weaknesses across the country. And as you get out West, like the situation we're in, uh, the biggest barrier is uh, travel. I mean, our, where we're located, we have uh, in Grand Junction, Colorado, we have one Division II opponent non-league that's within nine hours. Uh, but we have, I think, nine Division I schools in proximity to us within that same footprint. But the Div- Division ones won't play Division IIs really anymore. And when I first started coaching, our non-league schedule was primarily made up of playing BYU, Utah, UNLV, New Mexico. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Well, I think coaches have gotten smarter of all levels. Like a Division One coach, and we played nine Division Ones at Western because that was the only way we could get home games at Western Illinois because we didn't have lights and, and it was hard for people to get to us. Those were the most the games I was the most nervous about as a Division One head coach because you knew how good all teams are across all levels and you knew if your guys weren't ready to play and, and you would hope that your guys are going to get ready to play. But you know how kids are now. They're like, oh, we're only playing a, a Division Three school or a Division Two school now. Yep. You'll get punched in the mouth. And I think that has a lot to do with scheduling now is that Division One coaches know that if you play the better Division Two or Division Three programs out there, you're still going to have your hands full with those teams. Well, you are, and as and as 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 baseball people know. Sorry about that. I'm going to turn off my. I forgot to silence my phone. You know, in our game, uh, there's one guy that affects the game so drastically. <laughs> you know, it's like I tell people. You know, we were fortunate in 2005 to have Sergio Romo as our ace. Uh, you know, that guy has three World Series rings. Just retired after 15 years in the major leagues. I'll tell you in 2005, I'll go down, play LSU one game or Texas. 
Uh, and I'm not saying we're going to win, but I'm going to say they're going to have their hands full with that guy. You know, we're going to be in the game. Jamie Carroll is a college teammate of mine. He loves Sergio. Says the best guy, best baseball guy he's ever been around. Said he, Sergio's and, incredible. You know, you just got you have to get to know him and get. I mean, Sergio is who he is, and he doesn't apologize for that's it. That's how he's, he made it, though. Like he made yeah. it. He made it, and he stuck because he's always been who he is. Like he trusts who he is. He's genuine. Uh, I mean. Whether you like it or not, if you spend enough time around him, I guarantee you, you're going to love him. Yes. Um, now, I don't know if you want to compete against him. Uh, you know, you talk about a fierce competitor. Um, I, I've never seen anything quite like him as a coach. Uh, I mean, just a, a next level competitor uh, and let next level of confidence internally. Um, you know, but... Is that innate or is that developed? Did he has he was he did he come out of the womb with that or was that developed by environment? I, I think he came out of the womb like that, and then it was enhanced over time. You know, I uh, but but I think most of that is innate. I think it's born. Uh, uh, what a character, man! He's he's unreal. I loved watching him pitch. Loved it. You've never had a losing season. You've averaged 40 wins a year. You've only missed the regionals five times. I mean, and you were an assistant there, and you coached football too. But, I mean, did you know that when you took over as head coach? Like, we got a chance to, to do this. I mean, I, I don't know of anybody. Like, we, uh, any level, I don't know of anybody that's averaged 40 wins a season has never had a losing season. Well, I think uh, I, to answer that question, we just – I felt like we could be great and what do we need to be great and what, what, how do you define great? And to me, you know, winning is hard. And I, I've talked to people about this, our own players, winning is hard. Winning consistently is even harder because once you win consistently, there's a lot of other things that come up, complacency, um, you know, things like that. And, and you're dealing with 18 to 22 year old kids and how do you keep them grounded? How do you keep them focused? And we've experimented with a lot of things over time, but we tried to develop a consistent approach and we've adapted it over the years. Uh, and I'm a, I, I really, really enjoy studying leadership. Uh, I enjoy figuring out what wins. I do think there are things that win consistently. I think attitudes, levels of effort, uh, types of focus um, play into that and trying to put those things in place so that you can have consistency. Um, I mean, that, that's a big deal to us and it always has been. What are your favorite leadership books? Well, I'll tell you, I really love uh, a, a book by the name of Legacy uh, about the New Zealand All Blacks. Great book. Uh, I love a book called The Compound Effect. I forget the author's name. Great book. Uh, great book. I mean, guys, there's a lot. Um, those, those, uh, you know, I loved uh, Jay Billis's book on toughness. Uh, there's some great stuff in there. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I read a lot of books too, but I wasn't averaging 40 wins a year. <laughs> so there's got to be something more to, than just reading a leadership book and and getting it figured out. You said you've adjusted some things to keep players grounded and still pushing forward. What are you doing a little bit different now than maybe when you first started? 
we set weekly goals. Um, we talk about them. I, I'm big into what I call planting seed, planting seeds, and uh, planting seeds of success, thoughts of success, uh, developing pictures of what we want to achieve. Uh, but then you know, and you don't always achieve them, but we do most of the time. And you know, we set a lot of goals. We uh, uh, and we we honestly don't spend much time talking about winning. We we talk about all the pieces that cause you to win. And so our guys have competitions throughout the game. Uh, you know, people ask, and I hear you guys cheering in the dugout even when you're down after a certain play. Oh yeah, guys are fighting to, you know, uh, we have competition for who can get the first sack bunt down or hit the first sack fly or steal the first base or move up on a dirt ball uh, or what we, we call a synergy play, a, a play that uh, where a great uh, uh, hustle uh, has been displayed. You know, it could be a, a left fielder backing up a play, going to third. There's an overthrow, but the runner doesn't advance because left fielder's there. And so we actually have like a little score system uh, where guys are trying to achieve those things. And they're all selfless for the most part. They're, they're team-oriented. Who tracks your scores? So who keeps track of your points? Uh, we have a trainer do that. Love it. Uh, in our dugout. Yeah, our trainer's really something active. to do. Yeah, and uh, you know we have signs in our dugouts, guys. The you know guys get to pull down the signs. You know the cheering in the dugout is you, everybody celebrates. The guy comes in, you know if if he uh, has a one two three inning in the pitcher, he gets to come. We call it a kill, uh, and he gets to pull a sign off the wall that uh, says kill, and he gets to keep it. And my vision of it was like you know. I remember growing up watching that TV show you may have too, Baba Black Sheep, and the, you know, on those Corsair airplanes, they shoot down a Japanese plane. They get the little yeah. Japanese flag on their plane. So these guys get to collect those, uh, you know, and see how many they can get, and it, you know, becomes a little fun contest. But their success benefits the team. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the secret was that your wife graduated from Mesa, actually. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, it might be she, uh, I definitely married up and I married the right gal uh, because she loves baseball and she didn't know much about baseball when we got married, but she doesn't miss a game. Our kids have never missed games and they're all in. So that makes my job a lot easier. You know, with recruiting, does it help that there's only a divi one division one in the state of Colorado for you? Does it help you from a division two standpoint? Because I, I look at Wisconsin yeah, you know Wisconsin. There's one Division One. The Division Threes in Wisconsin are tremendous. Now a lot of them are public schools. You look at Whitewater; it's public school, so it's not your historical yeah. Division Three. Do you think that helps you a little bit in recruiting, just because there's not as many options for kids in the state? I, I think maybe. I don't know for sure though, because I'll tell you, uh, Colorado, as it turns out, ends up being for us one of the more difficult states to recruit, and I think that's because. Uh, in in totality, there's maybe not as many high level players as there is, say, in uh, Southern California or Arizona. And a lot of the Colorado kids uh, view getting out of Colorado as their ticket to developing a career. And then with fewer players, there's more Division ones outside our state that will come into Colorado. I mean, you know about them. Uh, there's more kids, I think, that get lost in the shuffle in Cal Southern California 
or maybe Phoenix. Um, so I, I don't think it hurts us. I don't know how much it helps us. Yeah. Because PG National, when I was recruiting, when I would go, there were always good players. Think about Andy Burns and Peterson. Yep. Like that. There were always good players from Colorado that were a PG National, always. Like well, big, big body know, arms and, and yep. athletic position players. You know, the biggest hurdle we have, and I think this is true for most Division twos, is these these kids aren't going through high school dreaming, usually, of going to Division two, And – Another layer that's become more difficult, I believe, is with the advent of social media and the perfect games and the rankings and and the way kids can market themselves. Um, you know, uh, it, it it just makes it it gives them access to a lot more places um, and and places to have access to them. A Division two is a it's a tough place to recruit. But for me, if I'm a kid and I know it's a different generation, but if I look and there's a program that's 140 games a year, I'm going to be intrigued by that program because I would rather go play at a place that that's going to win and have success than some place, maybe a little higher level that, that I may not have success at, but I was a team guy. I'm a team first guy, but I grew up around. Well, and so, you know, when, if I'm, if we're recruiting you and getting to know you, you become a target for us because we think your mindset is correct. Uh, you know, and it's not an end all to say you're at a power five uh, with a certain school's name across the Jersey. Um, the point of the matter is you want to win, you want to be in a good culture, you want to develop uh, and you want to play in big games. How soon do you figure that out when you call a kid? I know kids aren't great at communicating. Now I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old. It's hard to get them to communicate. How soon when you talk to a kid, are you like, okay, he might be one of our guys? You know, it changes sometimes right away. We figure, figure it out. Uh, you know, we run into a fair amount of kids that say the right things up front, but they end up wasting your time, you know, and they're very interested. Maybe we get to them first. We get to some kids first a lot of times and we have trouble getting them to commit. Uh, you know, they like it. Uh, they've been on a visit. Uh, they want to keep their options open, and then bam, uh, Division One calls. Uh, we just lost a kid to Ohio State uh, that was an 11th hour, uh, a kid that we thought he liked our school, uh, a shortstop, could really hit. Um, I mean, to me, it, it was the right fit. Uh, but then the the Ohio State called, and, you know, that's a I – mean, if you're a kid, I mean, these kids – Ohio State's a big deal. That name's a big deal, uh, I guess, to a lot of kids. I and I swung you know. through that campus, and I obviously I was at Iowa, so I've been to that campus a lot. But I swung through that campus. I went to visit Denison. That was one of my last five schools my senior year of, of high school. And I swung through that campus, and I spent five minutes on that campus. I was like, I would never go to this school. And I love the guys at Ohio State, and I love that campus now as an adult. But – as a high school kid, I was like, I will get chewed up and eaten alive on that campus. And, I, you know, hopefully the Division One rules that are being put in place now trickle down to where it allows everyone to make more informed choices on where, where they end up or where they should end up, as opposed to now people are just throwing darts because they really haven't had a chance to, to research schools, especially at the Division One level with kids committing as early as they do. Oh. People are just throwing darts at it right yep. now. They're just throwing darts at it. 
Well, and I think that, I mean, this is only my opinion, but I think some of this early committing and where, where most of the bad decisions are made. I mean, when I look at just Colorado kids and I look at, we know who's committed early and all those things. And then when we look a year or two later, who's in the transfer portal, um, it's largely those kids that made those really early uninformed decisions. And they made the decision probably based on the name of the school, the level of the school, and probably those schools are they're trying to be first to get to a kid. I mean, I think it would clean things up a lot if, if, if whether I'm a Colorado Mesa or Arizona State, if I like a sophomore in high school well enough and I want to commit him, I ought to be able to sign him. Yes. And then let's sign him. Yes. And then it's done. I've and said it for I said it for 20 years that should should be the case. It, it well, would it would clean slow up things so down, much. I think. And, and by the way, parents and players listening, if you're listening in, buyer beware because 38% of the people now that go into the transfer portal don't find a school out of the transfer portal. So it's buyer beware. I think everybody thinks that the transfer portal is a quick fix and I'm going to find a school. You're looking at, at almost a 50-50 chance now that you may not have a college to go to once you go into the transfer portal. That's exactly right. And – um, and I don't know, you know, you think maybe moving forward that uh, as that information gets out more and more, that people make maybe some more informed decisions. Um, well, but, even like small things, this is what kids don't think about. Oh, I'm going in the transfer portal, which, okay, like not every situation is going to work out. But there can't be that many schools out there that, that we can't have that many bad coaches where kids want to leave the schools. It's just not possible. But – the other part of that is you're delaying your graduation. So, you, you know, not every school is going to take all your credits from where you're coming from. So you're delaying your graduation. So you may have to, and now that COVID's over, that fifth year of, of more expenses, that's a lot of, that's a big deal. That sixth year, if you're there sixth year, that's a huge deal from an expensive standpoint. And if we look at the percentages, you're probably not going to play in the big leagues. So yep. you're, you're incurring a lot of extra money by leaving the school that you're at, but. Well, not only that, yeah, you're exactly right. And then, and now what's different than when I started coaching is you have these families spending all this money on travel ball leading up to that, that, and you know, when you and I were growing up, when I was growing up, there wasn't travel ball. You Legion. played American Legion in the summer and in the fall you played football or maybe another sport. And, uh, you know, but when I started coaching, uh, you didn't really go out very much in the fall. There wasn't fall baseball to watch. We got to focus on our own teams. Now we have to have an intricate calendar for who's going to be at home working with the team and who's going to be on the road recruiting. And, and it's, you know, it's tough. It's tough at every level that way. How are you deciding high school, junior college, or transfer portal now with where you're at recruiting wise? We, uh, you know, when I started, we were probably 80% junior college transfer program. Uh, now it's flipped. We're 80% high school. I mean, we, we want homegrown kids out of high school. Uh, so that's our objective. Uh, we target higher, usually higher achieving academic kids first, because that brings into play academic money, which can help land a kid, right? Uh, and then we, we use the junior college and maybe transfer portal as a way to plug some holes. Although we haven't really used the transfer portal much yet. We've, we've attempted to, but we've run into the same trouble with the kids that we think would be a good fit here. Um, they're looking for a, a, a bigger level, a higher level um, than division two. 
And I was dead set on deadlining kids for a long time. And then when I got to Western, I was like, I'm going to deadline kids because you brought it up. Kids don't like confrontation now. So even if they don't like your school, they're going to they're going to answer your call because they don't like telling people no. So that's why I ended up deadlining kids towards the end at Western, because I was like, they know if they want to come or not. They know. And if we get to that deadline and they haven't said yes, I know they're not interested. And so they're wasting our time. And and in a roundabout way, we're going to stop wasting their time. Because if they're talking to me, I'm going to keep talking to them. But it almost forced them to to say, hey, I'm not interested in your school. And it saves everybody time. And I was like, hey, you're never going to hurt my feelings. Like, I've been told no a lot. Um, If you recruit long enough at the college level, you're going to have thick skin. I'm like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just here's a deadline and here's why. Because I know you probably know if you want to come or not. And if not, that's cool. And I wish you the best of luck. But we need to try to get this thing going a little bit. Yeah, you know, kids will waste your time. And and, and you find out that there's kids that – that, that end up falling in love with being recruited and you, you, you know, they will uh, loves to be wanted. Oh boy, I like to be yeah. wanted. I mean, I can't blame them. Well, you know, and I, I wonder a little bit in this day and age with Twitter and everything else, you know, you see all these, uh, I'm reopening my recruitment, I'm decommitting. And, you know, in some cases, I simply think that they continue to be reached out by some schools. Maybe a school doesn't know they've committed. And, uh, you know, it, there's almost, there are some kids where it feels like there's no end to it. Yes. Uh, and those are the ones that are the least uh, pleasurable to recruit. They're also going to be the ones that are the least happiest on whatever campus they end up on. I think there's no question about that. And, you know, if you can get kids dialed down to, to picking a school for the right reasons, um, then, then you have a chance. And those are kids that will buy in and, you know, we're a very heavily team-oriented organization. And, you know, our uh, our seniors do all the dirty work. Our seniors carry the equipment. Uh, they clean the, the bus after a trip. That's the legacy. Yeah. And, sweep and the sheds. Sweep the sheds. And, and uh, the, the freshmen or sophomores know that it's their day someday to do that. And it, it's a hugely powerful thing. Have you read Leaders Eat Last by Simon Oh, yeah. Sandler? I yep. love that because that's a, that's a Marine thing. So the highest ranking officer in the Marines, it's an unwritten rule for the Marines. Anybody that hasn't read uh, Leaders Eat Last, I love that book. I love Simon Sinek, whatever he's done. It's, it's great, but that's a Marine unwritten code is the highest ranking individual in the room eats last, eats after everybody else. I love it. Yeah, his uh, first book um, – uh, about figuring out your why that's a good book too i love his uh ted talk his ted talk is amazing um you know and uh he shaped how to deal with millennials like when i finally started to pay attention to what he was doing he he spoke to me on that piece of the millennials you know that's where he's more focused he hasn't done as much with the gen z's and now the gen alphas but he was really dialed into the millennials and the, what the millennials wanted. And I, I started to change some things as a coach because of what he was putting out there. Yeah. You know, uh, those are, those are some books. So as we talked earlier that are really good, I mean, there are just so many and, um, um, I, there's a new one out that I'm getting ready to read. I, my assistants read it and he said, I needed to read it. And it's, uh, 
the, the gentleman uh, uh, who did the the video on make your making your bed. It was at a commencement speech. Uh, he just wrote a book, uh, something about the bullfrog. Okay, um, I haven't read it. I read the I read the ten, the one where he went through the ten things in the commencement speech, and the making yeah. your bed uh, video is in my coach's talk that I give because it's it's on habit building. The one one of the talks I. I give is on habit forming and, and peak performance. So that's one of the videos that I show is, is the habit forming piece in that talk. It's good. I love that video. You know, there's a couple other guys I just, I want to mention too, that have been very impactful to me along the way. Uh, uh, a gentleman named Rod Olson. Uh, and I don't know if you know of Rod, but if you don't, you'd, you'd uh, love to get to know him. In fact, he was the one that just tried to call while we were on our a zoom call uh he he runs an organization called coaches of excellence um and he was uh, uh he worked with the pittsburgh pirates the, the rangers he, he's worked with a lot of different organizations but then that got me tied up with a gentleman named kyle stark who was the assistant gm for the pirates kyle's just off the charts great at this stuff and they had invited me to a pittsburgh pirates think tank a couple of times where i was exposed to uh, guys from the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the, the the guys who teach the SEALs, the instructors, and actually got some good stuff from them that we apply in our program daily. What did you learn from Skip Walker? <laughs> Skip Walker. Well, first of all, he's uh, he's still, I mean, overall the best hitting guy I've been around. He was very influential to me with some hitting stuff. And uh, I had a great experience playing at the College of Southern Idaho. Uh, it was a last minute deal. And, um, you know, he, that guy wanted to win. And uh, Chris Welker played for us at Iowa and then coached with us at Iowa. So he was a CSI grad. So, yeah, I actually saw Chris and I drove the equipment out from University of Iowa to Fresno, California. We we're saving money on the on the bag fees with the equipment. And we split the trip up out there and we stopped in Rangeley, Colorado and watched <laughs> CSI play in a doubleheader. And I think it started at noon. You know, we stayed in the Rockies. We split it up, but we we got there in time for BP. We're watching BP, and we get through the first game, and then somebody watching the game was like, hey, where are you guys going? We're like, well, we're going to Vegas. He goes, hey, you better get out of here because the bull deer are going to be running through the the roads here, and you're probably going to get your car smashed. So I was like, hey, well, we got to go. So we went to Vegas, spent some, some time there watching some high school kids. So Jeff Malm. Uh, was coming out of Vegas at that time. Um, you know, Johnny Field ended up going to Arizona, who was on that team at Bishop Gorman. Paul Seawald went to San Diego. So that, that Bishop Gorman team was good. We went and watched them work out and then got to Fresno. But after after we were done with that tournament in Fresno, we had a midweek game against Northern Iowa. We had to drive 27. Chris and I drove 27 straight hours back in the, in the Suburban. We were in a vehicle for 27 straight hours. We should have died somewhere along the road but we made it luckily but uh, my nervous system was a little shot when we got back to iowa city being 27 hours in the car that's a lot of that's a lot of miles <laughs> but i mean you're on the golden anniversary team for the for junior college there's only 20 50 years of junior college baseball there's only 50 players and two coaches or uh, 20 players it's not even 20 yeah. players so, and, and obviously you're a very humble human being, but if I was on the golden anniversary junior college team, I would have, I'd shot that out a little bit more. 
<laughs> well, yeah, we had a, that, that was my sophomore year at College of Southern Idaho. We, uh, I had a good tournament that weekend and I had a good two-year career at CSI. Uh, we, we really came close to winning that thing. We ended up finishing third. Uh, we got beat by Wayne Graham and San Jack, 8-7, uh, late in that game. Uh, and then I think the Hillsboro, Florida team won it that year. They beat San Jack the next night. Um, but that actually, I think that was the first year of the bracket. They had changed the bracket. We had actually beaten uh, the Hillsboro, Florida team. So there were three teams with one loss. So they did a coin flip, uh, I think is how they did it. And we lost the flip. So we beat Hillsboro, Florida, and then had to turn around and play San Jack. We beat Florida, and they got to go to the championship game. And that never felt right, uh, you know, but. Um, I don't understand that with both. I, I love both tournaments. I love Grand Junction. I love Enid, but there's coin flips that happen with that. And it just, I was like, either we got to add more teams or cut some teams back. Like for me, I think you add some teams so you don't run into that deal at the end. So it's a coin flip because it's unfair. I mean, you're leaving it. to you, It shouldn't be a 50-50 chance that 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 happens on a coin flip. Well, what would be incredible uh, is if the NJCAA could successfully recruit California schools and the Northwest and get those teams involved and maybe turn this into a 12th team thing in Grand Junction or, you know, whittle it down some other way. Uh, you know, and the, the folks at Grand Junction have always wanted that, but I don't think we've ever been able to get uh, – California to join the NJCAA. Yeah, that's the boy, big holdup because their their state championship runs into so you know I guess the only way you make that work is you have them push up a week and then their championship ends before Grand Junction starts is the way that you yeah no that. we you could do that but I think you could also take a North winner and possibly a North winner and a South winner and. You know, the way we do, they do with Texas, there's, well, there's a chance of two Texas teams uh, that make it to the Junior College World Series. But, yeah, what an event uh, it is here. It's, it's tremendous. Who do you feel like had the most impact on you when you were a young coach? My dad. Uh, my dad, Jim Walker, did, as you mentioned, Skip Walker. And then a gentleman named Tom Petroff as well. Um, my dad was a uh, high school and college football coach for 32 years. I actually grew up with more of a football background than baseball. I did both, um, which is why I, I really ended up coaching both when I came to Mesa. Initially, I during the off seasons, the years that I didn't play some form of winter ball, I I, I volunteered at, at high schools and coached football because I thought I might want to do that. And you know, he uh, he was very, you know, I, I grew up in a coach's house, so he was the biggest influence. Skip Walker was next, and then. Uh, my last spring with uh, the Tigers, uh, Tom Petroff was um, the uh, director of minor league development, I believe. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking to him about coaching. He knew I wanted to coach, and he actually invited me to come back as an instructor, which I passed on because I, uh, I, I didn't – I think I wanted to try the college game. Um, but uh, – my my spring there with the Tigers, Tom Petrov did such an amazing job organizing the practices for AAA down to the short season team. He did all the practice plans with the uh, the, the managers and coaches, but 
those would get posted on each row of, you know, there you have the triple A lockers, the double A lockers, the single A lockers, and he'd have all those. And at the end of the night, uh, when the day was over, I, I took all those practice plans every day for whole spring training and built a notebook. And he knew I was doing that. And I remember the one thing he told me is he said, he said, Chris, you're going to have to come up with 20 different ways to teach every concept. And I said, why is that? And he goes, because kids are going to learn differently. And uh, it was really a powerful piece of, of, of advice. Did any of those guys try to talk you out of coaching? No, none of them did. <laughs> See, mine none did. Them did. <laughs> did mine did. They were like, you should probably think about doing something else. It's too hard. But I was like, no, no, no. I love it. I love it. Did you take anything from That's the football kind of the... side? I mean, any, did you bring uh, anything from the football side over the baseball side? Yeah, I, I'll tell you what football does for you. Um, football, I think, has been largely light years ahead of baseball in a lot of areas, from strength and conditioning, which now that gap's been closed, to a lot of things. But football teaches you, from a practice standpoint, a tempo for like a practice that even though our game's slow when we play it, uh, practicing at a higher intensity level for shorter durations at a good tempo is better. It just, it just is. And that's what I think football teaches more than anything. So your practice there. plans now, like how long do you guys go when you're going practice wise? How, how long do you guys go for practice? Uh, it's usually uh, two and a half hours. Uh, this time of year though, we, we have it down to an hour and a half. Um, and we spend a little more time doing mental type work. I, I actually got, uh, we morphed closer and closer to that over my time. I learned that, you know, early in my career, I thought we had to be grinding on these guys up to the last minute. And I was wondering why at the end of the year, early in my career, we sometimes played flat in a conference tournament. And when we started backing off guys, giving them more downtime, uh, that changed. And, you know, I had a, I had a nice talk with Pat Casey uh, a couple of times and, asking him about late season runs. And that's one thing he recommended was take some miles off them, do more meetings, more mental work. You know, you've had all those reps and that was good advice uh, that he had given to me at one point. Yeah. That was Andy Lopez when Arizona won it that year, they basically were doing it with four guys. So he was like, they didn't even throw bullpens. At the end of the year, <laughs> right? The year they Bro. won it, they had, they used like four guys at the end of the year to get through that thing. He's like, yeah, they didn't even throw bullpens. You know, part of coaching, uh, and I think you get better at this the longer you coach because you you've seen more, you've made more mistakes through the school of hard knocks. But one of the biggest facets to being a, I think, a good late season coach is is figuring out when to stop coaching. <laughs> you know, and, and get out of their way. One thing my dad always told me, you know, when he was coaching high school football, he also had to coach track. Uh, and he, he he would coach the shot putters and he didn't know that much about it. And I said, well, what did you do? And he goes, I did everything I could. I, he goes, I didn't want to turn a 40 foot shot putter into a 30 foot shot putter. <laughs> so basically it's, it's, it's knowing when to stay out of their way, you know, and sometimes coaches feel like they got to be the reason a kid's successful or a team's successful and it doesn't have I talked to, be to a coach way. the other day it didn't end the way the way that he wanted and I'm like hey you're 
you're putting too much emphasis on yourself. Like, I there's a lot of things out of your control. You're dealing with 18 to 22 year old kids. So don't put so much pressure on yourself that, and injuries have a lot to do with that too. If, if your best players are banged up, there's only so much that you're going to be able to do. Like it's just, it's the cards that you were dealt. So you got to play with it. And I think postseason time, especially for coaches is a time to just sit back because they're already putting pressure on themselves because it's postseason. Yep. The worst thing you can do is add more to that because then they're going to be tight. And so you yep. do have to get out of their way in the postseason because they're already going to be wound up because it's the postseason. So you do have to be able to get out. And that's hard for coaches. I mean, I, it is hard. That's a tough adjustment for coaches to have to make. Well, it is. And, and you, you know, uh, you know, there's I, I forgot who said this and I forgot where I heard it. But something that I try to live by since I heard it was, you know, when you when you want to say something to a kid or a team or whatever, you know, there's, you can go through it. You ask the question, uh, does it need to be said? Okay. Maybe it needs to be said. Okay. Does it need to be said by me? Well, maybe the answer is yes. Does it need to be said by me right now? That's the key point. And if you, if you work through that progression, uh, honestly, I think you can make some better decisions. You know, and since you've put more emphasis and responsibility on your seniors, do they take care of a lot of that for you? They absolutely do. Uh, um, I got hooked up on one of those think tanks with an, uh, an amazing guy named Fred Johnston, who runs a company called Initiative One out of it's in Wisconsin. And Fred's worked with the Seahawks. He worked with Pete Carroll and that group. And I, I got to spend a lot of time with him. And he taught me this concept, what he called he's he's got a book out there. I think it's called is everybody on the boat, but uh, the concept of thoughtful leaders and what a thoughtful leader is to him is person in your organization who carries the most influence and has the, he basically asked the question, who has your locker room? Um, you know, and he told me the story when he worked with the Seahawks that uh, he challenged them to find out who had the locker room and, you know, through a series of meetings and different things, you know, he reported to the organization on which Seahawks had had the heartbeat of the men, so to speak, in the locker room. And, and as it turns out, it can be very surprising. It's not always your star player, your best player. Who do the who does the team listen to? And if you can identify who those thoughtful leaders are, you can utilize them to affect change and get correct answers and make even better decisions. A lot of times it was our bench guys who never played, but also were our hardest workers in the weight room and on the on the practice field. I think the players appreciate the fact that here's a guy who's probably never going to see the field, but he's working just as hard as everybody else is. Like I felt like those guys were some of our best leaders because they had the locker room because guys saw like there's probably no hope for that guy to get any action at all, but they're still busting their butt. And so, yeah, that's probably a guy I respect a lot because I don't think a lot of kids would do that. So I think they have respect to those bench players that never see the field because they see how hard they're working, but they don't, they know that they probably could never do that. So they respect those guys. You're exactly right. You know, uh, a simple thing with people like that on our first road trip this year, we had a new player on the road trip who never traveled with us a transfer. And I mean, we have a simple standard. I wouldn't even call it a rule. When we come down for breakfast, we're showered and we don't wear caps. And, and we look like we're ready for the day. We don't come down and flip flops and, uh, 
all that. Uh, and we had a young man come down and he, he had a hat on. It wasn't a bad looking hat. And I saw him come in and then immediately uh, one of our, what I would call thoughtful leaders stood up, walked over here and just said, Hey, uh, we don't wear hats and not, not confrontational. Uh, our guys use terms like we don't do that here. You know, if it's uh, engaging with another team in a bench jockeying type way, we don't do that. Uh, we don't say that. We don't yell at the umpire that way. We don't do that. And that's just super powerful. That was one of my dad's rules too, is the shower piece and no hats. And then you figure out why later on. It's because it basically guaranteed that everybody had gotten up. They they didn't get up one minute before breakfast time. They had actually had got and, and showed some care too. Like that's a big piece. You're developing care when you develop those habits. Like, hey, I got to get up early. I got to shower. I got to get ready to go. You're developing better habits, but also you're going to perform better too because you're you're up. You're more alert. Yeah, you feel better, man. There's there's nothing bad that comes from getting up and getting ready for the day, right? And the other way is just lazy. And, uh, you know, and kids make mistakes. There, As we say, there's room for error, uh, but we'll correct those errors, you know. Uh, you know, one thing I had mentioned, Rod Olson, is a, that I, I really like it and that we use all the time as coaches is we ask the question, are we, are we coaching it or are we letting it happen? Uh, we're doing one of the two things. You're either coaching the behavior, or you're you're allowing it to occur, and you got to cross that bridge and answer those questions. Do you feel like being an assistant helped you for six years? Do you feel like it helped you when you finally took over the program? Absolutely. Um, you know, I was an assistant for two different football coaches, uh, and I was an assistant for two different baseball coaches. So that really helped. Um, you know, and then, of course, as a player um, playing for Skip Walker, I, I played for my dad in the sport of football growing up. You know, you have the chance, not to mention the managers and coaches in the minor leagues, but you have the opportunity to take what you liked, what was effective, you thought. And and I haven't taken everything from every, any one person, but have robbed, I think, the best pieces from many. You know, one of the, you asked the influential question, What one guy that was a huge influence on me, and I've never met him, uh, is Skip Bertman. I'd love to meet Skip Bertman. But, you know, I was a young coach in 1993 at the coaching convention, I think in Dallas. And LSU had won the title, I think, but he was the key, he was the first speaker. And he, uh, he, he did, the name of his talk was Playing Together. And in those days, you could buy a, a audio cassette of the talks. <laughs> I still have that audio cassette. I bet I've listened to it over a hundred times. Pull on the rope. And back in two thousand, we had, we had our worst season in two thousand three. Um, and so we, what? We said, what thirty nine wins? Yeah, it was. We were actually disappointing I think, uh, season with thirty. You're thirty nine and <laughs> and eighteen, and it was a disappointing year. Well, you know, there was some stuff that went on that was team level stuff where guys didn't necessarily get along, and we didn't operate very well as a team. And I pulled that tape out. Um, that was uh, that was the summer of two thousand three after the season, and. Uh, I, I really, really listened to it and some things he did. And uh, 
we started uh, taking some of the advice that he had given in that talk in 1993 and put it into action. And from 2004 to this day, we've never had some of those same problems again. And uh, someday when I caught, uh, if I'm fortunate enough to cross paths with Skip, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank him, even though he's never met me, because that was very impactful to, to our organization. You've had great offensive teams. Did you stay really involved as a head coach then with the hitters like you were as an assistant? Yes. Yeah, I've always done the hitting. Um, and my assistants, I've got great assistants, Sean McKenney, Mark Vig, uh, a guy named Steve Wojtek, who now has moved on, Jeff Rogers. Um, you know, and I we missed also- it as a head coach. I didn't. I had so many other responsibilities that I missed some of that cage time with the guys. Yeah. So that, that was the only disappointing thing for me is transitioning from an assistant to a head coach is I felt like some of the, the development pieces went away just because of all the administrative stuff you had to do as a head coach. So I, I did. Oh yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. And you know, uh, a lot of my stuff, you know, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, Skip Walker, uh, I think he's a great hitting guy. Um, probably the hitting piece and leadership are my two passions. Uh, but we've, yeah. And to your work- credit, you've stayed with it. I think I think some head coaches get sidetracked with that where they go from away from their strengths sometimes of what they're really good at, maybe recruiting as an assistant, and then they get to a head coaching position. They feel like they, they have to change or change things. So I give you a lot of credit for like staying true to what you're good at and allowing that to still be a huge part of your program too. Yeah, yeah. And- and, you know, I enjoy it. And and to your point on strengths, I think that, uh, you know, I have a couple of, of assistant coaches that are just amazing recruiters. They're better than me at that. And I tell them that. And I still recruit, but they're better at it. Some of those kids need to, they need to be the first contact with kids because kids really respond well to them. They're, they're great with the kids and the families. Is it easier now or more difficult now to coach hitters with the amount of information that's out there for them? It's harder. Um, we have this talk all the time, you know. Uh, I mean, kids forget that, um, you know, as coaches, they're in our program and we make the lineup, so to speak. I mean, as a player, that would concern me. You know, what is the, what is the head coach? What do the coaches want? I always ask that question. What does the coach want? I'll give that to them because I want to play. But these kids have such great great access to at their fingertips. You know, when I started coaching, I mean, I guess a kid could buy a video on VHS if they wanted to. uh, But then you got to have the VHS player. You got to spend the money. Now they just you can search uh, anything, how to throw a knuckleball, uh, how to hit more home runs. And you're going to get a lot of different answers. And uh I spent I think, more time looking at my own swing. Like, I, I think that's where we get lost in the shuffle. Kids are paying attention to so many external things. Focus on your own swing. Like, what works right. for you? Focus on what works for you. They're, there's just, they're drinking from the fire hose, and they just simplify it. Focus on your swing and clean up your own swing. Like, clean up your swing. Yeah, and, you know, you're exactly right. And, and the other thing that happens with hitting is – Hitting is a hard skill. We all know that. Uh, we make it harder by making it more complex uh, as well. We need to simplify it. And if you can simplify it down to a, a limited amount of cues or things, 
you know, and we always talk in our program, a, a guy's got to understand that the when you're taking batting practice, whether it's off a coach, a machine, you're hitting off of a tee, the flight of the ball after you strike, it tells you a, a lot about your swing. And learning to get the ball to do what you want it to do in a controlled environment like a front toss flip or a something shortened up, a controlled drill where there's a lot of strikes, um, you know, it's like almost like an extended version of pepper in a way. You know, the old guys played a lot of pepper. You learned how to manipulate the barrel. We went to um, long pepper if we were struggling. You know, it's yeah. a, it was a modified, you know, you're going to choke up. You're just trying to stripe the ball through the infield. And it's amazing what happened when guys finally learned how to control the barrel. It's amazing. It's crazy. And we've done, over the years, I've tried like, heck, I don't want pepper to die. So I don't we either. Teach our, I didn't We either. teach kids how to play pepper. Yes. And you know what? They don't like it initially. Yes, they don't. It's kind of hard. It's, it's twofold, hard. though. One, it's barrel control, but for defense, too. Like, you're getting more reps off the bat for the defenders, too. And you can have fun with it. We used to – we had so much fun playing pepper. And it's competitive. It is competitive. If you miss the ball, you, know, you go to the back of the line. Like, if, if, you, if you don't catch the ball, you go to the back of the line. It's competitive. It is. And, you know, it's also – it's a great – it's a great – drill for pitchers when you have those segments where you don't have anything for the pitchers to do on one level it feels like oh we're just shoving them over there to play pepper but you know how many balls they get to handle and and that's the one shortcoming of of the pitchers is they don't get the opportunity to handle enough short hops uh you know and things and it's actually a good drill very good what are some other keys i mean you, you csi was wood back when you were playing right it's still wood correct it was metal when I played, and it switched to wood after. I don't know what year they switched, uh, uh, but it was metal. Because I think uh, wood cleans up a lot of inefficiencies, too, for kids. It certainly does. I think uh, it certainly does. Smaller I sweet mean, spot, heavier. And yeah, nobody likes to break breaking bat. your bat. Don't break your bat. Yeah. Better swing at good pitches so you don't break your bat. Well, I remember going through the minor leagues. You know, the longer you play, you figure out, man, you can get a lot of mileage out of your BP bat without breaking it It when you learn to hit, you know? Uh, Mine had a, one spot. I would tape it to keep it. I, I still have my one from the Cape League. It has, like, the Joey Votto where it's it's on the same spot every time. Like, I had no power, but my average and base hits were good, but it was like Votto. It was on the same spot on that tape every time, which I had some feel for my barrel, and I think wood does that. I would make guys tape their wood up all the time just to get feedback on where they're squaring the ball up on the bat. It's a great way to do it. Yep. It certainly is. Do you do fall evaluations with your players? Yeah. You do annual yes, fall do. evaluations? How does that work for, for you all? It works well. Uh, we're very creative in, uh, I mean, in, in terms of telling them what they need to work on, where their deficiencies are. That's what you're talking about, right? Yes. You have them rate each other, or is it all coaches' oh. evals? All all of us coaches evaluate a uh, kid together. Yeah, I think that's kind of gone away, too, with the newer generation. We used to evaluate each other coming out of the fall. My dad would make us evaluate the, the players and the pitchers. And I think from a peer group setting now, I don't think it works as well with the newer generation of kids because they don't handle confrontation well, and I think they feel like they're nope. getting called out by their teammates, which yep. they're not. They're being honest about where they felt like you were at in the fall, but I think kids take it – they take it too personally now. Yeah, they certainly do. Uh, it's a different uh, – coaching's changed. 
you know, it's, uh, it's different. And you bring up the social media, you know, I got, I got fairly frustrated with the kid. I think it was last year near the end of the year in the tunnels. And I was trying to help the kid and just wasn't listening to a very simple concept. And I got frustrated and I asked him, I asked him, I said, you know, if, if maybe I had to start a Twitter account, if I put this drill on Twitter, would you listen to it? You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's how Friday Fielders started. I mean, Kai, those guys started at Tucker Frawley because they they made a fake account so their players would actually listen to, to what they were saying because they didn't know it was them. So that's why they started Friday Fielders. Is, I didn't know it started as a fake account. It was a I mean, it wasn't a fake, fake account, but they started it and nobody knew it was them for right. their players. So they could be like, hey, look at this. It's on social media. So maybe oh. you need to start like a, a pseudo hitting Twitter account that's yours, which is going to have phenomenal information, but then be like, look what I saw on Twitter today. <laughs> oh, you know, that's a great idea. Uh, if, if I do that, I'll let you know the name of it. Yes, see, please. Let you know how it Because you your team's mash. I, I, need, I need some secret sauce because your team's do mash. <laughs> do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to set you back, but looking back now it was something that kind of pushed you forward? Well, I would go back a little bit to that, the bad year in 2003 that we had. Uh, and really uh, all the things that happened internally. Uh, I made the, the biggest mistake I made as a coach was this, to answer your question. Now, that particular year, the, so it was the fall of 2002, I think we had five or six really good Division I transfers coming in. Uh, two pitchers from the University of Arizona who were high school draft picks. Uh, they are big scholarship guys. It didn't work out. They bounced from Arizona. Um, and among others, and I remember going into the fall and meeting with the coaches as we were getting ready to set the fall. And in those days, I think we only had 24 days to practice as a team. And I made, I remember clearly thinking, you know, we got some dudes, we got talented kids. They don't need drills and fundamentals. They just need at bats and innings pitched. So that fall, 21 of the 24 days that we had was just scrimmaging. That was it. And when we got back in the spring, scrimmage, at bats, innings pitched. And we just, we underachieve. It still might be one of the most talented teams we ever put together, but they are the worst performing team in my 25 years to this point. And, and it really boiled down to the internal stuff, the team dynamics. Uh, and that's what we got fixed uh, moving forward. I think that's where you'll see the NIL take a negative turn. You know, it's NCAA's fault. They didn't put stipulations on any of this. Yep. So the coaches are just doing what's available to them, which I completely understand. But it shouldn't be for guys to get them on campus. It should be for the players. I, I think I think one thing, NCAA, I know you don't listen to me ever, and you, you never will, but you should have a year in residency on campus before you can take NIL money. I think you should have to establish a year of residency on campus before you can get any NIL money. And I still think it should be a graduation component. I think it should all go into a fund. Once you get your degree, then you'll get your NIL money. And I know people run me through the ringer for saying that because kids deserve to get the money now. I, I think there should there should be a, a carrot dangled out there. Okay, if you want this money, you need to get your degree. I know people be like, ah, you're wrong on that, which I might be, but I just think there needs to be some regulations on, on NIL. 
Well, I don't disagree with you one bit. Uh, there are some problems in our game, in our sport. Uh, that's one of them. The NIL is problematic. The transfer portal is problematic. Um, you know, it's good in some sense. You know, we had a kid here at the end of the fall who, a pitcher who, he, he wasn't going to get to pitch for us. But I had told him, you know, you're going to be on the team. I'm not going to remove you. This is just, you're probably not going to get to pitch. And he said he wanted to get in the transfer portal. And I said, you have my blessing. And I think the transfer portal was built for that kid. He wasn't going to get to play here. We were clear with him on that. We liked the kid and the person. He's a great student. Um, but on this particular year, there was not going to be an opportunity. And so he got to transfer and try to go play somewhere else where somebody had a greater need. And, but unfortunately, the transfer portal is being used in a lot different ways. And now as college coaches, some of our best players, we have to even be careful about sending them out in the summertime and where they go and who they're with. At um, least in the past, I mean, you saw it before the transfer was put in, it was Division One scooping up Division One players because yep. as you I, – I don't know why we did away with as you move up levels, you have to sit out a year. I, I don't know why we, we went away from that. I think – that again, that gets it back to where it should be. If you want to move up levels, that's fine, but you got to sit out a year to do that. Well, I'll tell you, it just it uh, you know on some, and it's happened to us. We uh, we lost our uh, Friday night starter that went to a Big Twelve school and was their Friday night starter the next year. It killed us. Uh, it was probably the difference in us last year losing in the super regional. Uh, as opposed to winning the super regional and moving on. And, um, but, but beyond that, beyond just the move, what happens with some of those things with marquee type players at uh, division two or three or NAI, whatever it is, is those things, those moves aren't in my opinion, being handled above board. Uh, there's back channels that are occurring uh, because a lot of those top flight kids aren't going to just jump in the transfer portal not knowing where they're going to land. Exactly. I believe that most of the time they know where they're going to land. And, and then a school loses them, a school who's been loyal to them. Uh, it, it just, it, it turns into dirty business. And again, that's NCAA's fault for not legislating this. Like there, there should be more yeah. oversight for, for all of this. It's like they, it's like they wiped their hands of it and was like, okay, you guys all go figure it out. And that's what they should be for is keeping the integrity of the game and there needs to be guidelines. As human beings, you have to have guidelines for humans because if not, then all hell's going to break loose. Like there, there yeah, has to be guidelines. Because yeah. if not, there's going to be that certain few that are going to take advantage of it. Oh, there's no stipulations. Okay, good. I can do whatever I want. Uh, yeah, and, and and do whatever you want, no matter what the Well, you know there's going to be nothing coming back. There's no blowback for it. There has to be blowback. Okay. That's right. Like that's the only thing that keeps the certain that that top ten percent that's going to work around and navigate around the system. You have to try to keep that ten percent in check because if not, then things like that are going to happen. That's right. Is reading your morning routine? Do you read in the mornings? Yeah, uh, I yeah, I probably read more at night. Um, I'm more of a night reader too. I I try to yeah. get my meditation and exercise done in the morning, and then I I kind of go in spurts with it where I'll read like three books at a time and then I'll be done with it for a while. But yeah, I'm more of an evening reader also right before bed. 
Yeah, and then, uh, well, of course, at our level, bus trips. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and where, where we're located, our our nearest opponent is four hours away. So, uh, how, how do you make your non-conference schedule work? It's it's difficult. You know, it, it's really difficult. We have to fundraise a lot of money to play a schedule we want. You know, for example, this year uh, we found that we had a bye week in uh, uh, April that matched up with Rollins College out of Sunshine Conference in Florida. So we reached out and we set a two-year deal. They came here this year and now we'll open up next year at Rollins uh, in February. Uh, you just got to find people that are willing to travel. We have to do really good guarantees uh, to get them to come. Uh, and you just got to with your guarantees, is it hotels, meals, is it cash? What, what are you doing for guarantees? Uh, all of the above. Uh, and then, uh, you know, different things for different schools, depending upon what their needs are. Uh, Mine was then, hotels and meals first, because if they gave us cash, we never saw it. And coaches are like, oh. what are you talking about? I'm like, if you give us 20,000, it's going to our athletic department. It's not going to our baseball program. So I need hotels and meals. They're like, are you sure? Yeah. I'm like, yes. Luckily, some of the bigger schools, it was hotel meals and cash, which is fine. But I was like, if push comes to shove, like I, I don't want the money. I want hotels and meals because it actually benefits us because the cash is going to go to Western Illinois athletic department and not to the baseball program. That's what we, we are prim primarily meals and hotels. And then on the rare occasions that it's a check, it's like uh, mail it directly to me, you know, and then I'll walk that check over to the college foundation and deposit that sucker before anybody sees it. And shout Whether out to we, Dave Van Horn at Arkansas. That's why we always went and played them because he took care of us. And Rich Price at Kansas too. He's not coaching anymore, but Coach Price and Coach Van Horn were the best because they had come from that side. Like they, they weren't power five coaches to start. They were – lower level coaches so they appreciated lower level programs they always took care of us i love both oh that's great yeah rich price great guy i don't know dave but I dave's know awesome done a great job what are some final thoughts before i let you go i know you're getting ready to, to win this thing so what are some final thoughts before i let you go well uh you know i just think that uh coaching uh is leadership and trying to figure that, that out and it's I mean, all the, this journey in coaching isn't, uh, it, it's ongoing, you know, uh, uh, we have a, we have a scene in our program, you have to have a white belt spirit and, you know, a white belt is the beginning belt, uh, in, in the martial arts. And, you know, you got to have a spirit that you're always learning. Uh, and I, I do really believe, and my dad said at the minute, you, you think, you know, it all, and you've got it all figured out. You're number one, you're going to get humbled, but number two, growth will stop and so uh you know you, you just got to keep trying to get better coach hanks thanks for your time and honestly jim richardson i think of all the coaches in the country i think he has the most respect for you of any coach in the country and that that's all i need to know about you is oh, that, that's that cool. jr well, respects you the most of anyone in the country so that's a that's a huge compliment to you well that's that's nice to hear thanks for sharing that and of course jim does does a wonderful job and I enjoy working with him uh, with the ABCA and hopefully we can uh, push to get some things accomplished to make this whole thing better and better.
Yeah, I'm excited for you guys. I think you're going to get that done. So appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the way out. Hopefully I see you here soon. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure. I had a blast with Coach Hanks on this one. Could have kept going, but I try to be cognizant of the listeners and keep our time down, even though it pains me to stop when I know we have more to discuss. Thanks again, Antonio Walker, Jim Richardson, John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt Weston, the ABC office, for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, Coach B underscore ABCA, or direct message me via the MyABC app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.